There we go. Alright. <clears throat> yes, he's fishing. Wherever Logan, what Logan that lake is. Uh, what's the difference between a poorly dressed man on a unicycle and a well dressed man on a bicycle? A tire. One for the money, two for the show. A tire. <laughs> Why were they called the Dark Ages? <laughs> because there were a lot of knights. <laughs> the final one. What did one toilet say to another? You look flushed. <laughs> All right, guys, I have good news. Save a bunch of money by no, just kidding. Uh, this is a second to the last Hebrews. Yes. So we will end at 31, number 31. And uh, then we'll start a series I've been working on um, after that. But uh, this one, we're going to hit the rest of Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in uh, verse 14. And I would suggest that you know, when you read the Bible and you find instances where the Lord says to strive for something, to take note of those, because it's it's rare that he says to strive. And usually I found out when he says to strive, it's with something that you wouldn't think you would need to strive for. You know, peace, mm -hmm. rest, things like that. And, uh, and so here in uh, Hebrews 12, beginning with verse 14, we're seeing another place where we're supposed to strive. And so in the Passion Translation, it says, In every relationship, be swift to choose peace over competition and run swiftly toward holiness, for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Watch over each other to make sure that no one misses a revelation of God's grace and make sure no one lives with a root of bitterness sprouting within them, which will only cause trouble and poison the hearts of many. Now, in the English Standard Version, that phrase, be swift to choose peace, is actually strive for peace. So again, it's like an oxymoron. It's a paradox that he's joining these two words together. Uh, now, of course, we know back in Hebrews chapter 3, Paul told us to strive to enter, to, in, enter into his rest. Uh, and when, we know rest is also a place of peace. But what this tells us is that entering into rest and being a person of peace is something that takes effort. Yes, it does. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Let's over here. This is what I'm doing this week. And the word strive kind of goes to earnest expectation, actually, because it is uh, to do something with intense effort, okay, and with a definite purpose or goal. That's in the Greek. Intense effort and with a definite purpose or goal. Now, so why? Well, I mean, it doesn't take rocket science. You know what I mean? There's people in this world that are annoying. And there are people in the ecclesia that are also annoying. And so it's important for us to, obviously, we know that's going to be the case, but for ourselves and on our end, to do everything we can with intense purpose, a definite goal, right? Uh, intense effort to maintain peace between that other person. Now, sometimes people will not receive the peace that you're offering. And Jesus was very plain. If they won't take your peace, pick it up and take it with you. Right? But uh, the idea here, the crux of what Paul's saying, is to avoid competition with one another. So sometimes, like if you look at um, Joseph, the jealousy that his brothers had for him, uh, David, same thing, um, uh, Moses. Wouldn't even be, he said this, 
And she said, yeah. said, you said that. And, yeah. You know, back and forth, you're just competing in your words yes. against each other. Right? And unfortunately, Jacob probably didn't convey an equal love to all of his sons. I mean, everybody knew that he loved Rachel over Leah, right? Or Leah, however you say it. So th there was a competition. But like we were talking about Friday, in Christ, all things have been given to us. There's no reason to compete or allow selfish ambition in. In fact, the, fact, the fastest thing to get Holy Spirit to leave is selfish ambition because that's actually a strife, right? And uh, so let's look at the meaning of peace because I think it's important. Peace in the Greek is Irene. That was actually the name of my grandmother. And it's, quote, a set of favorable circumstances involving peace and tranquility, to be without trouble, to have no worries, to set down in one's heart. I like that. To set down in one's heart. That's really neat. It's the opposite of war and dissension uh, among individuals, peace and harmony. It's peace of mind, tranquility, arising from reconciliation with God, and also a sense of divine favor. You can feel the favor of God on your life, okay? It also means peace, meaning health, welfare, prosperity, every kind of good, the way of happiness, bliss, and blessing. In the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word shalom, which means wholeness, soundness, health, well-being, prosperity, more particularly peace as opposed to war or opposed to strife. In addition, God is the one who dispenses peace. He expects peace of his people, meaning the absence of confusion. And finally, peace is the paramount blessing that Israel was looking for in the messianic kingdom. So let me phrase up all of those good things. Peace is every good thing you can think of manifesting in your life. Really, every good thing. And, uh, and I love that. I love that whole thing. But the set down in one's heart is just so good. Okay. I want to read to you John 14.27 out of the English Standard. And I'm going to read it out of the Amplified. And this was a life-changing scripture for me. Because uh, it empowered me. Uh, I saw that peace was within my control. And a lot of times we think that peace is a victim to circumstance. Just like we think joy is a victim to circumstance or a victim to uh, people not irritating us or whatever it is. We have to understand, you know, there's a, you know, now that I think about it, there is a huge victim mentality in the church. I mean, if you talk to an average, uh, I use the term believer loosely, uh, if you talk to an average believer, they're always under attack or under this or fighting that or battling this or talking about someone that's irritated them or getting over a divorce 30 years later or whatever it is. I mean, it goes on for decade after decade after decade. It's a victim well, mentality. I think it goes even further than that. A lot of people, their Jesus is still on the cross. He's being whipped. He's being, you know, that's good. he's being all that. He's not ever, for them personally, been resurrected right. from the tomb. And he now dwells in inapproachable light. Right. So the King of Kings is alive and well. You're you're very very right. So we've got this situation where people think that if this happens or if that changes or if this person marries me or if I get rid of this person or if I go to this church or if I work at this job, and like I tell people, you're the common denominator. If you're unhappy, it ain't because of other people, it ain't because of circumstance, and it dang sure ain't because of God. Because Jesus Christ delivered all the things that we need, all the promises, so that we can live a godly life. So our job is to appropriate, to learn about those promises, and get them activated in our life. And the main way you do that is by changing the way you're talking. That's, that's a big way. And so... Happiness is internal. In John 14, 27, it says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Now, that's a big package. My peace. 
The peace that was able to sleep in the midst of the storm. The peace that was able to cast out demons and not be intimidated. The peace that was able to walk on water. The peace that was able to endure the cross for the joy set before him. The peace that was able to endure his beard being ripped out. His intestines exposed. His flesh completely torn off of his being. That peace. The peace that was able to be on the cross with the full assurance that God would resurrect him from the dead. The same peace that went down and said, give me back my keys. You know what I mean? That's the peace he gave us. That's the peace that's beyond mental understanding. It's not a mental thing. It's not deep breathing. It's not sitting out in your backyard. It's not sitting in the recliner watching a show you like. None of that is what Jesus is talking about, although, although those are enjoyable activities. And then I think, don't you think that they, sometimes when you're always constantly in battle, you're looking at the enemy 24-7. Right, and he's ugly. I don't well, even yeah, think on 24-7. And you're, you're zeroing in on his power. And you've actually and become his, what you behold. And, and you allow, you know, well, we know from these different, you know, battle type things, and I'm sure Gary and Richard can say, but a lot of the battle is psychological. Oh, absolutely. You can win psychologically, and and we know even in the Bible with Gideon and some yeah. of those, it was won psychologically yes. before it was ever you know what more more than physically. Right. So if you're always under attack, you're always fighting a battle. You're always, always, always. Yeah. You have zeroed in on the on the enemy twenty four seven. Yep. And you have got your eyes off God mm -hmm. and and His help, yeah. and His reassurance. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about you know the type of peace that He gave us, uh, it, it I like how Philippians puts it. It stands as a guard. Peace is a watchman, and so it stands as a guard against the things that might try to make you anxious, right? But the other part of that is Paul said, think on these things. So you're saying if if your peace is disturbed, then something's happening and you need to, to Well, it's a the psychological check. warfare. Right. Because it's a thinking process. As a mind thinks in his heart, so is he. Your life today is a result or a reflection of your most dominant thought. So you have to keep your eyes focused on Him no matter what's going on. And quite frankly, a lot of the battles that Christians are fighting is actually because of their own decisions or not recognizing that it's an attack of the enemy of which we have been given authority over all His power. When you go on past that, <clears throat> what that scripture you gave in John, it says, you know, I don't, he, this is Jesus and He's saying, uh, the world approaches, he has no power over me. Right. I mean, so if he has no power over Jesus, mm -hmm. even before the resurrection, mm -hmm. he has no power over us no. either. The only access point he will find is any part of your mind that is in agreement with his philosophy. Right. And uh, so it's really important to understand that peace is a supernatural thing, but in order to have it operating in your life in a very strong, powerful way, is you've got to check your thoughts you have to make sure that your thoughts are lined up with peace. And I think that's something that we really need to do at this time in America's history. Uh, I will never forget that it's right in the middle of a planned riot and the Lord gives me that vision of America and she's starting to come to life on January 6th. Now that's an oxymoron, right? So that's the thing that I'm watching. Well, if you're not careful, You've got China doing psychological warfare, trying to mess with the morale of the country. You've got Democrats undermining the morale of the country. One of the reasons that President Trump won was because of his patriotism and he had hope for America. He said America has a great future. We need to be apostles of hope. We need to be people that let other people know you have a great future. Your future is so bright, let me hand you some sunglasses. You know what I mean? Like, that's what it needs to be. We don't need to beat people up. They already beat themselves up. You know? They know what sin they're committing. Now, some may be ignorant. You know, like, for example, it is not biblical to live with someone before you're married, just in case any, you know, young people are wondering that or old people are wondering that. 
Uh, just because marijuana is legal doesn't mean God likes it. So there are specific things that maybe we need to alert people of. But most of the people that we want to minister to, they need to have hope. And they need to know God likes them. Okay? God likes them. And He wants them in His family. So here in John 14.27 it says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus is the Prince of Peace, right? So He uh, left us, excuse me, or bequeathed to us His peace. It was like a last will and testament. I leave you my peace. He also let us know that the world does have a level of peace. Okay, there is some, some peace things you can do, like again, deep breathing, stuff like that. But His peace is sourced from eternity. And it's far superior to any worldly peace. And it also empowers us to keep our hearts in peace or allow our hearts to sit down. Now, in the Amplified, it says, Peace I leave with you, my own peace I now give and bequeath to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you, do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now here's the part that got me. Stop allowing yourselves to be agitated and disturbed. And do not permit yourselves to be fearful and intimidated and cowardly and unsettled. I read that thing over and over and over because at the time, uh, it was one of those times where Mike didn't have any work. And so there was a lot of anxiety there. And I would read that in my backyard over and over and over and over. And then when I would feel like that anxiety come back up, I'd grab it, I'd read it again. It was almost like I was snacking on it all day long because I was trying to starve anxiety and feed peace. Ooh, ooh that's a good statement. Starve anxiety, feed peace. Can you text that to me later? <laughs> I'm getting some merch ideas ready. Coffee go. cups and shirts. I'm going to use uh, Roberta's hell damage. Uh -huh. I love that. But I'm trying to figure out how do I use a phrase hell damaged, H-E-L-L -L damaged, but also convey the sense of victory. You know, we may have some dings in our armor, but we're still victorious. So if y'all get any thoughts, let me know. But when she said hell damaged, I was like, oh, that's so good. I like puns and, you know, little word plays. Okay, so here's the main thought. Stop allowing yourself to be agitated, cowardly, intimidated, and unsettled. The world's peace, again, is dependent on circumstances. His peace is entirely outside of any of that, and it's sourced in presence. It's part of his kingdom, and it's a tangible aspect that we should carry according to Romans 14:17. And if you look at Romans 14:17, it's the kingdom of God is righteousness first, peace, and then joy. So righteousness is the first step of peace and then peace is the next step toward joy okay all right so now with the understanding of what peace is i want to go back to why we must strive or use intense effort to choose peace okay so the main reason paul tells us to strive or pursue peace in every relationship is because we are living in a war zone we are in a world system governed by the evil one and he is the exact opposite of peace so that means he's going to throw everything he can at everyone, not just us. It's everybody. He's going to throw everything he can at them to get them out of peace. So he steals, he kills, he destroys, he intimidates, he creates fear, he brings war and strife. He's the author of confusion. He brings sickness and sin, curses. He at, so we're basically paddling against the current, right? And uh, we have to keep peace, a, an intentional pursuit or goal. Really, if you behold Jesus, you're beholding peace. But peace is inside, you know. I think a lot of times we ask God for peace, like we're praying to heaven, we're asking it to come down, when the Lord's like, I live in you, that's a stupid prayer. That's like asking for milk if it's in your refrigerator. Just go over there, open it up, and get you a drink. That expectancy. Yeah, yeah. So it's not hard. We just make it hard. And I think we have a religious mentality of where God dwells. Yes, He's in heaven, but God also lives in us. Right? So 
I think sometimes we go outward too much when all we have to do is just go inward. Kind of like what I was saying, you're stepping inward, stepping into the Holy Spirit on the inside of you is a good thing to practice. Now, I like competition. It's part of my D nature. And uh, I feel it's healthy in certain circumstances. Um, business, I'm going to be competitive. And that comp uh, competition plays itself out in excellence, you know, integrity. I'm going to treat my clients with the utmost uh, servanthood and uh, I'm always for them I'm gonna you know even to my own hurt uh, so that's healthy competition right unhealthy competition is where you view someone else and you feel less than unhealthy competition is also where you view someone else to feel more than it's either can't forget that okay and uh, so you know obviously we're gonna have some competition that's healthy but one definition of competition in the Greek is a rivalry for supremacy. And that's unhealthy among Christians. It's outward manifestation of selfish ambition and envy, which invites every evil thing. So in James 3, 14 through 16, in the New King James Version, it says, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above. It's earthly, sensual, and demonic. That Bitter envy and self-seeking is what caused the enemy's fall. Okay, so that's why it's demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So the phrase bitter envy, I want to I hit that because we're about to see that again in our Hebrew text. So the phrase bitter envy, what's interesting is the words bitter and envy or jealousy and selfish ambition are all similar. I had no idea. They come from the same root words. So they're like siblings, okay? So bitter, and I, I left you the, um, the number here. Now this is not a Strong's number, uh, I, and I can't pronounce the resource, so I'll have to give it to you if you want. But uh, uh, bitter is defined as feeling resentful. It's the Greek word pikros, and it was used to indicate the fruit, fruits of the wild vine or bitter gourd, which are so excessively bitter and acrid as to be a kind of poison, okay? So it means bitter, cruel, and malignant. Jealousy or envy is, quote, a particularly strong feeling of resentment and jealousy against someone. It's the word zelos in the Greek, and it means to be hot and fervent, but in an evil sense, it's envy, jealousy, anger, and fiery wrath. So for the Greeks, zealous could start out good. It could be good. You're zealous for the Lord or you know, zealous for purity or whatever it is. But it could degenerate into a jealousy which makes war upon the good it sees in another. That's troubling that good and diminishing it. And then selfish ambition is, quote, a feeling of resentfulness based upon jealousy and impl implying rivalry. It's eretheia and is from a noun that means to work for hire, not fire, used in a bad sense of those who seek their own. So it's a hireling. Uh, I've had one notable instance where selfish ambition manifests at the furnace and the Holy Spirit was poof, gone, within seconds. It's like, couldn't even blink, huh? And he ain't there. And I was like, well, we shouldn't be here either, you know. And so asked him what was going on. And it took me all night to get even just a, you know, a small part of his presence back in the place. And, uh, and so I determined, oh, no, we're not doing that again. And, uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm very protective. If I feel like people have selfish ambition, um, I'm very protective now, very careful in what influence they have where Holy Spirit is, okay? Okay, now, in John 10, 12-13, here's an example of a person who is selfishly ambitious. It says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and he leaves his sheep and he flees. And the wolf snatches them and gathers them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep, okay? So it's always about that person collecting a paycheck. It's kind of like, you know, oh, yes. If you have a home and you own it, 
and then you set you you decide to rent it the person who rents it will never treat it like the one who owned it now me and mike did or sell them, yeah. every rental house we had we left it better than what it was but the majority of people unless there's an ownership tied to it they're going to treat it less than it's the same thing here a hireling is going to mistreat the sheep and leave them for danger and so here we um, see more definitions of selfish ambition of contention strife represents the motive of self-interest mercenary interest it also meant canvassing for public office scheming so politics yeah that's why you have a bunch of rhinos you have a bunch of people that are willing to sell this country out to China. I mean, you got a lot of that stuff going on. It is selfish ambition. Okay, so let's reread verses 14 through 15 in the Hebrew, and then we're going to get to bitterness. So in every relationship, be, be swift to choose peace over competition. Run swiftly toward holiness, for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Watch over each other. So there's a brother's keeper situation to make sure that no one misses a revelation of God's grace and make sure that no one lives with a root of bitterness sprouting within them which will only cause trouble and poison the hearts of many. Okay, so bitterness is the noun of picros, it's picria, and it means, quote, a state of sharp, intense resentment. Do you see that word resentment? It just keeps showing up, okay? Resentment is an emotion of a victim. They resent the good someone possesses, the good someone is, that they're a victim. And they blame everyone for their <coughs> bad circumstances or their internal turmoil, right? So there's a lot of resentment, hate, spite, uh, whose mouth is full of curses and bitter resentment, anger. So we're not to allow bitterness to grow, produce fruit, or generate other roots of bitterness. I can tell you of a, a gathering right now where not only do the people there, the majority of people, not all of them, not only are they allowed to be bitter and to, to spew bitterness out of their mouth, but the leader is bitter and doesn't even know it. And so bitter attracts bitter, right? And uh, it's causing a lot of problems. It's causing a lot of problems. So you have to stop it right at its root and pluck that thing out. Now the word... Um, root is the cause or source of something it's the reason now uh, a bitter person has turned away from following the teachings of Christ that's important you can't teach bitterness out of a person because they're not interested they want to be bitter well and it says it's corrupt it's corruption yes you know we always say corruption being like Im immoral right uh, bribery know, adultery, adultery. Yes. yeah but Bitterness is we do not connect. We don't put that in our brain. Well, and if you think about, like, if you have something acidic going down pipes all the time, eventually it's going to put holes in those pipes. It's the same thing, you know. Eventually, the holes they just start sprouting everywhere, depending on how caustic a person is, and it's burning everybody. It's causing people's problems. People problems they can't see correctly. They they get wounded. Whatever it is, uh, you know, fire. Like, I was talking to someone, you know, fire does not intentionally burn. You know what I mean? Because it's just fire. So if you mishandle fire, you get burned, right? With acid, you have to use it to harm someone. And so here we have the situation where these people, they don't care about the teachings of Christ. In fact, the people I'm referring to, when you try to give Scripture, it's dismissed. And they always go back to their bitterness and why they're bitter. Have y'all noticed that? They don't even realize it. But. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> now, it's an allusion to Deuteronomy 29, 18. It says, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord, our God, to go serve the gods of these nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Now, Paul is joining bitterness to idolatry. I never saw that before. So that would be maybe similar to this, uh, uh, not corrupted, uh, hope deferred type. Makes the heart sick. Yeah. Could be. You know, Could be. Because you're so offended. Yeah. Offi 
think that's what I'm trying to think. Yeah. Offended faith. Yeah. Uh, that you turn bitter. And, and look for other ways. Other yeah. So, a bitter person serves other gods. It can be self, religion, pagan gods, etc. It doesn't matter. Anything that takes supremacy over God is an idol. So I find it interesting that bitter Christians turn away from the teachings of Christ and they either go deeper into religion or legalism or deeper into rebellion or lawlessness. That's usually what they do. Okay? I'm sure you guys have seen this as well. Well, and you add on to Scripture, mm -hmm. don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have, you know, you start following the book of Joseph Smith. You start following, uh, you know. You start drinking Kool-Aid. Yeah. And, the, yeah, whatever the... The, yeah, they started. They started adding on to, and then they start following it more than they follow. Well, yes. justifying their, you know, bitterness and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, divorces start happening, all kinds of crazy stuff. Now, the reason bitter is so uh, so dangerous is it has a tendency to poison other hearts, and it'll start causing a division if it's not pulled up. Now that pulling up is outlined in Matthew 18 on dealing with a believer who is in sin. If they refuse to deal with their bitterness, they need to be kicked out, which I've done that to, I could probably count uh, three to four people so far. Uh, I will not allow bitterness. You know, it just is so dangerous. And I'll work with the person to try to get them past that, but if not, see you later. If you don't want to let that go, then we don't need you here. Okay, so pursue peace. It's like a vaccination against bitter envy and selfish ambition, but sows holiness. Now, I like how the Passion phrase it, runs swiftly toward holiness. So, I looked at the word holiness, and it's, quote, to dedicate to the service of and to loyalty to deity. So, holiness is a dedicated focus to union with Christ Jesus through certain practices like worship, study, communion, speaking in tongues, etc. But, the emphasis is upon your pursuit of union with Christ as much as possible in this lifetime. Not rules. Not shoulds. Okay? That has nothing to do with holiness. Holiness is a pursuit of union with Christ as close as you can get to Him as possible in one man's life. That's what that is. I like that. I like that. That's holiness. I think it, it, it's interesting. I was looking... Uh, on that 17 when they were talking about the, the, the testable practices and idols. And the, the word for idols is basically poop. <laughs> it says in the Hebrew, it alludes to dung. So beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord their gods and they go and serve poop of yeah. those nations. <laughs> no. That's about the quality of the idols. The idols. Idols are basically S-H-I-T. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I thought that was... Uh, I did not say it. I spelled it. If you said it in your head, that's your problem. Okay, now let me give you some further proof that holiness is not rules. In the Greek, the emphasis is not upon a manner of life or moral behavior. They did not view holiness like that. Again, it was just dedication to a divinity. So there are some examples, however, where the word is used in connection with morality, but morality stems from union with Christ. It's relationship-based, not rules-based. Okay, so like I said, I think Friday, religion is doing, relationship is being. Out of the being comes the doing. Okay? So you, never, you don't ever want to put doing first because then you're into religion. Now, I love how the Aramaic translated see the Lord. Okay, so it's those who are not holy will not see into the Lord. That's how the Aramaic is. That's so good. That's so good. Because the reason this is so important, guys, is we're already holy. Jesus has already declared us holy. That present state is there to become a source of a closer union with Christ. That closer union with Christ eliminates all the things that would keep us from seeing into Him even more. Now that gets me. That's where now you've got a situation 
where God is just sitting down with you, sharing his heart, telling you his dreams, things he wants to do, things he would love for you to do, how he views you. You see what I mean? Now you're in a situation where you can tell what he's feeling by his voice, right? And so he allows us to see into him as we are devoted and pursuing our union with him. I mean, to me, that just sums up what holiness is uh, and takes all the religion, all the legalism out of it. So holiness demonstrated in focused attention to your union with Christ in presence will allow you to see into God. I mean, it's the highest level of intimacy you can achieve. Okay? All right, so, so far, we're to intensely pursue peace, run swiftly toward holiness, okay? Watch out for any bitter sprouts, and finally, watch over each other to make sure that no one misses the revelation of God's grace. Okay, so fails is to quote, fail in some measure to attain some state or condition. Oh, and here's right here the Lao Nida, L-O-U-W dash Nida. Uh, that's where I got the, the uh, definitions for the words for selfish ambition and all that earlier. Okay, now listen to this. It is an expectation of the Lord's showing kindness. So the revelation, make sure that no one misses or fails the revelation or to receive God's grace. Uh, in other words, we do not, we, okay, we have an expectation of the Lord showing us His kindness, number one. That's the revelation of God's grace. If you miss it, you have failed to miss that state or condition of expectation. Most Christians do not expect God to be kind. Okay? They're, he's able to heal me, but is He willing? Right? Well, now we know we already did, so that question's even mute. But you know what I'm saying? There's people that have that. Um, so here's the thing. And it's funny, when you're working with people that are blind to what you're trying, like, you can see who they are. They have no grit. So you're just, you know, you're just trying to help them get even a crack to see what you're saying. That way it'll spark expectation, right? Okay, so if the Lord, He's always kind, he sends rain upon the unjust and the just. He made us all the things that we see, and He's beautiful. Okay, He's showing kindness, but the missing the revelation of God's grace are those who cannot see it. So He's being kind to them. They're blind. Now, that will lead to bitterness, you know? And what's crazy is you can set that person down and say, actually, I see God's kindness in this. And I'll be like, blah, 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 blah. Some will be like, you know, they never get it. Others will be all, I didn't even see that. I'm like, yeah, I mean, to me, that's how kind he is, blah, 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 blah. So it's like we're an interpreter of kindness to people. Ah, be an interpreter of God's kindness. Can you send that one to me too? Man, I am with it, you know? I was early. I was ready today by 10.04. Gigi's my witness. 10.04. Let's blame it on Mike. I did. I texted Mike and I said, today is proof that you make me late. And he said, no, I'm not taking that. And I said, well, I did get up 20 minutes early. <laughs> but anyway, but we are interpreters of God's kindness to people, His grace to people. They don't see it all the time. And again, a lot of it's religion, a lot of it's being raised under an abusive dad as far as Satan before we were pre-saved, all of that, or before we were saved. Okay, so basically, um, let's see, where am I? Here we go. The word, okay, it's an expectation of the Lord's showing kindness. Charis is grace, particularly that which causes joy, pleasure, gratification, favor, acceptance for a kindness granted or desired, a benefit, thanks, and gratitude. Now we know that grace is also the internal work of the Holy Spirit on the inside of a person that begins to show itself outwardly. It's the power of transformation on display. But I want to point something out. Paul is saying to watch, to watch out, that no one fails to attain 
the state or condition of grace. If grace is the expectation of the Lord's showing kindness or kindness shown out, and that then sparks joy, pleasure, gratification, favor, and acceptance along with the thankful heart, then how can teaching that blames God for evil help us attain grace? You see what I mean? Now I'm getting fussy. You cannot be aware of God's grace if you're telling people that God is making them sick. Does that make any sense? Well, then Paul has lied. And Jesus lied. Moses lied. And all these deals that talk about the kindness of God have lied. Yeah, yeah. Or, or let's say that someone is at a low point. Maybe they're going through some type of trial. Maybe they are experiencing a trial in their body. Or maybe their spouse left them. Or maybe their child has turned away from the Lord. And then you have people that actually blame that person. So now, they're like, oh, I must be being punished. So now they're not going to be able to see God's grace. He's telling us, guys, to watch over. Remember he told the disciples, watch and pray? So that you do not enter into temptation. Well, it said, "Don't allow others to to right. for that so, seed of bitterness." Yeah. So, so we what? See it, we need to point out. Yeah. So what if we're actually attributing to people not seeing the grace of God? So this is how serious this is. That if He's saying, "Make sure that you watch over everybody so that they see the revelation of God's kindness," then maybe you should filter everything you say and teach through that uh, standard. Let's call it a principle. Let's call it a standard. So if what you're saying does not allow people to see God's grace, then maybe you should check yourself before you say it, right? Now, does rebuke have to happen? Absolutely. But the way the Lord rebukes, faithful are the wounds of a friend. When He rebukes, you can feel His love on it. Now, it may be painful, but you still feel His grace on it, right? Uh, didn't uh, Paul write somewhere else, uh, let every word that proceeds from your mouth be like, uh, that gives grace to the hearer. It needs to give grace. So that's an interesting idea because when you speak, you're imparting grace to the hearer. Right? So how many times are we not doing that? And we can say flippant things. Well, you know, we, it says we can all prophesy and the, the, the purpose of the prophecy is to build yes. and to edify. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about. Yep. You don't have to have a necessarily some supreme revelation. Know, revel yeah. The world's going to end on say, this date. I, you know, I see that you're going through some hard times in X, Y, and Z. You right. Can just, you can just prophesy what you know. Right. Uh, but let's even take it down to some practical things. You remember, you, know, you like to bring us goodies, which I'm still waiting on those enchiladas. <laughs> I need to taste test those. But anyway. And remember there was a certain individual that every time you'd bring something, there was some type of complaint. Well, why can't you bring gluten-free? Or you always bring your base up, but we don't get anything. And uh, after that uh, third incident of that happening, I, it's almost like I took her by the ear and drug her over. And I said, you are being rude. She is out of kindness in a giving spirit bringing goodies. Who cares if you get to eat them? Bring your own goodies. I am tired of you saying anything to her. I well, I didn't, that's just, to me, I think that's rude. And I said, you're being rude. You know, she doesn't know. Why would I expect her to go to the trouble? You know, and then, well, you know. So anyway, it can be something that small. Just a flippant comment out of a frustration, which I have definitely been guilty of, where you cannot be imparting grace, right? We don't want to be careless with that. So, I'm so sorry, I've done that. Yeah, I've done it too. Me too. I'm like, yeah, I'm feeling a little bit of some spanking back here. Okay. So Paul is telling us to make sure that we all live in an expectation of the Lord's visible kindness being demonstrated toward us, and then we can do that toward others. Any doctrine that undermines the expectation is not from God, period. And I personally believe that one reason bitterness that causes trouble is allowed to grow within a person is a lack of emphasis on the kindness of the Lord toward His children. We've already lived as orphans under an abusive stepfather. Why would we want that anymore? 
Such thinking zaps a person of any real joy and ability to live wholly dedicated to union with Christ. I mean, I know. Like, I, I got up this morning, and I'm just, like, looking around. You know, we got Gigi, and we got the cats, and the dog, and, you know, Mike's getting a fish. I'm looking at the house, just the beauty of that house. It's just stunning. It's absolutely stunning that he gave us this house. And, you know, and I'm thinking, man, I haven't had to mow this year. Like, I was just, like, thinking, you know, all this stuff and all the good things. I'm like, Lord, your kindness is just evident everywhere. If people could just taste, and I'm not saying it's in your surroundings. I was happy in my little house with the swamp killer, except during monsoon season. Then I was a little fussy. But other than that, I was good, you know. And I look around at my friends and the people God has put in my life and my sister and all this stuff. And I'm like, it's it's overflowing. It's overwhelming. I can't run fast enough to get away from your kindness and your goodness. Why would I? That's dumb. Just stop running. But anyway, it's like all of these things, that's how kind he is. He takes such pleasure in doing that. He just absolutely loves it. So, we need to bask in that and be thankful. And sometimes we're not. I but, know. But, but we can all go and visit the pig pen, but that doesn't mean we have to live there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there you, go. you pull yourself Yeah, out I just really don't want to visit the pig pen anymore. <laughs> it tracks mud in those but every pretty once in a while wood floors. It does not mean we need to live in the pig pen. All right, so let's look it up. Verse 16, be careful that no one among you lives in immorality, becoming careless about God's blessings. Well, here we go. That's what we're talking about, right? Like Esau, who traded away his rights as a firstborn for a simple meal. And we know that later on, when he wanted to inherit his father's blessings, he was turned away, even though he begged for it with bitter tears, for it was too late then to repent. Now let me read this in the English Standard. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. He wasn't devoted to God, right? To union. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, in the English standard, a root of bitterness is directly tied to Esau's actions. Okay? So, one of the most dangerous places to live is in the blessing of God. Now, here's what I want to say, because the Bible is very plain. He doesn't add sorrow to our blessings. But the awareness of our dependence upon Him and our need to, uh, for Him can diminish if we're not careful. Okay? So a wise person will cultivate the awareness of these things in the midst of blessing. So you, it's a constant awareness. And I remember, you know, after I, uh, a few weeks ago, it was maybe five or six weeks ago, I was over there, you know, in worship. And I was like, you know, I just need you, Lord. I was just very straightforward. And there wasn't any need, like, I was going through a trial or I was... There was, a, you know, you can need God a lot when you're in the middle of a trial. But do you still recognize your need for Him in the midst of blessing? And when I said that, and I genuinely, you know, felt that, I sighed a sigh of relief. Because my life is blessed. And that was one of my prayers is, Lord, I never want to forget you, you know. And I was like, oh, I still need you. Thank goodness. I was over there like, woo-hoo. You know, and I didn't want to get too too loud. But I was like clapping, you know, because I was so excited. So we need to cultivate our dependence upon him even in the midst of blessing. Now, again, Paul ties sexual morality to being careless with God's blessings. Again, that's very interesting. So the peace of God, the shalom of God that we studied earlier, brings material blessings as well as spiritual and emotional. And with increased blessing comes increased influence and power. And with those things come unholy influences of corruption, sexual immorality, and greed. Now this is not a deterrent to pursue peace and enjoy the blessings of the Lord because they're from Him. But it is an encouragement to be aware of this and increase your union with Him or the holiness of pursuit. Because remember, that is holiness and holiness will protect. So Esau became unholy. Okay? So he is careless with his blessing, the firstborn. Now, the firstborn received obviously the bulk of the estate, but also the blessing of the Messiah. So he held the coming of the Messiah as inferior to a mill. 
Well, you know, we're all children of God. Mm -hmm. And some people, and we all know them, they don't hold that privilege as anything. Yeah. It's like, woe is me. Or an entitlement. Yeah. Or, yeah. But either one. But they see no need to be connected to the Father. Mm -hmm. And Esau right here really just didn't hold. It was an expected. But here's an interesting thing. He Esau was his father's favorite. Right. See, that's interesting. So but Esau... He felt, so he felt no need to ever do have to do anything. It turned into an entitlement. Yeah. Jacob, on the other hand, was doing everything he could to get the promise. Now, a lot of people, you know, blame Jacob. He was deceptive and blah, blah. And his mama, you know, he's a mama's boy and all that stuff. And I can, I can agree with that. However, he had already gotten the blessing of the firstborn from Esau. Mm -hmm. And Esau said yes for the bowl of stew. Mm -hmm. And then Esau tried to get the firstborn. And so Rachel, no, Rebecca is like, no, I don't think so, right? So it's a very interesting dynamic, but his zeal to receive the firstborn was tied to the promise of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? And uh, in Esau, he could have cared less. So discipline and appetite is a requirement for the child of God. Like I have a no Amazon month this month. I may have to get a couple church items or you know grocery items I can't get anywhere else, but there's no no Amazon this month. Why did I do that? To discipline appetite. I love going to Amazon. Getting a book here, getting, you know, something I might want. But I was like, you know what? I cannot allow anything to have more of a hold on me than Holy Spirit. So, no Amazon then. Now, I did add a couple items to my wish list. And I'm anticipating with intense expectation and hope, Kathy, oh, that at August 1st, I'm going to get my two <laughs> items here. But anyway, so those are things I'm talking about. You discipline yourself, your appetites, whether they're Amazon, whether they're food, whether they're TV, whatever it is, because of your devotion to the Lord, not because someone tells you to, right? Not because It's everything that you do is to have that union with Christ on a deeper level. So sin entered the world due to a lack of discipline and appetite. Don't notice that? It was an actual food item. Esau treated his birthright with contempt for a food item. And then blamed Jacob for losing it when Jacob tricked their father. So, uh, and, and by the way, in Malachi 1.3 where it says that God hated Esau for his contempt, that word hate means hate. It's the opposite of love. As far as I know, it's the only person by name that God, who is love, hated. Not even Judas. Does it say he hates him? Isn't that interesting? So, on top of that, Esau married and continued to marry women from different tribes who served different gods akin to sexual immorality back then. So when he tried to find a way to get his birthright back, there was no place for restoration. It was too late. So there does come a time when it's too late. That's it. And that's where the fear of the Lord comes in. Right? Alright, let's finish up. Verse 18. For we are not coming as Moses did to a physical mountain with its burning fire, thick clouds of darkness and gloom and with a raging whirlwind. We are not those who are being warned by the jarring blast of a trumpet and a thundering voice, the fearful voice that they begged to be silenced. They couldn't handle God's command that said, if so much as an animal approaches a mountain, it is to be stoned to death. The astounding phenomena uh, Moses' witness caused him to shudder with fear. He could only say, I am trembling in terror. By contrast, we've already come near to God in a totally different realm, the Zion realm. For we have entered the city of the living God, which is the new Jerusalem in heaven. We've joined the festal gathering of myriads of angels in their joyous celebration. And as members of the church of the firstborn, all of our names have been legally registered as citizens in heaven. And we have come before God who judges all, who lives among the spirits uh, of the righteous who have been made perfect in his eyes. And we have come to Jesus, who established a new covenant with his blood sprinkled upon the mercy seat, blood that continues to speak from heaven forgiveness. A better message than Abel's blood that cries from the earth, justice. I thought that was interesting. Okay, so real quick. 
assembly is ecclesia, okay? The governmental council of God on the earth. But what's interesting is the word festal gathering. It's Panagoras in the Greek, and it's from two Greek words, pos and is all, and agoras, which is assembly. But it comes from the word agora, which means public square or marketplace. So all the marketplace. Okay, so I thought that was interesting. So obviously it's a public gathering and festivity. But I want to suggest that maybe we're supposed to make the marketplace a festival place of celebrating one another. That's going to be my goal. Helping one another in the midst of healthy competition, of course, in a place where the goodness of God is displayed. One of the first places Jesus' blood was shed was in the marketplace on the way to Golgotha. So the main thing here is the supremacy of Christ. We're not coming to Moses. We're not coming to the mountain. We're coming to God himself and to a heavenly reality. All right? And so what chance do we have if we turn our backs on God and refuse to hear his warnings from heaven? I think it's interesting that uh, on 23 there, <clears throat> that it was the assembly of the firstborns. And, you know, we just got to talk about Esau. Mm -hmm. And he basically turned his nose up right here. Yeah. I mean, for and this. It's funny because there's a pattern, too, in the Bible that every firstborn missed it. Yes. It was always the secondborn. And God is going to have his generation of firstborn. That's us. That's why if we're part of the first resurrection, right? So we are firstborns. Yep. He's the first fruit. We're the firstborns. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 26. The earth was rocked at the sound of his voice from the mountain, but now he has promised once and for all, I will not only shake the systems of the world, but also the unseen powers in the heavenly realm. Now this phrase, once and for all, clearly indicates the final removal of things that are shaking, that is, the old order. So only what is unshakable will remain. Since we are receiving, right, so it's a continuous tense, our rights to an unshakable kingdom, we should be extremely thankful and offer God the purest worship that delights His heart as we lay down our lives in absolute surrender filled with awe, for our God is a holy, devouring, devouring fire. So I love how Paul expertly, brilliantly, through the Holy Spirit, combines the kindness of the Lord to the fear of the Lord. It's really, really good. Okay, so in the Old Covenant, his voice shook the mountain, and Christ, God who became man, he's now shaking the systems of the world with the unseen powers of the heavenly realm. Jesus has inaugurated the final shaking of all things, the old order, established by his adversary in the garden. Because of that, our hearts should overflow with extreme thankfulness to God that we're part of an unshakable kingdom, and we should offer him the purest worship that delights his heart as we live in that profound reverence for him. Now, here's the thing. If you're feeling shaken, you need to look at what in you needs to be shaken. Okay, so shaking can manifest as fear, anxiety, depression, anger, frustration, a feel of powerlessness or helplessness. So if you feel any of those things in any area of your life, there's a shaking that's probably going on and he's trying to get that stuff out. Well, I think what we was talking about here on this, um, we turn our backs on God and refuse to hear his warnings and speak from heaven. So a lot of the things that we blame God for. God has been saying, look out, don't do that, Yep. do this, Yep. And, and it says right here, we've turned our backs on that, and then when it happens to us, then we say, well, it's your fault. Right. No. God said, "Yep." I told you. He always <laughs> warns. In fact, whenever I mentor people that uh, have that perspective that God you know, did some bad things to them, or they must have done something wrong, or whatever, I will tell him, I know 100% he warned you. So where is it? Let's backtrack, right? And let's figure out where he was warning you because he did not do this. And they're like, oh. And so we will. We'll backtrack. I'm like, there's a warning there. And then we'll get, there's another warning. He was trying to tell you the whole time. So then I had to obviously minister to them that they don't feel like idiots or guilty, right? So we got to get that taken care of. But it's not filled once. A hundred percent of the time, we can always point back to a warning. Isn't that interesting? 
And here's another interesting tidbit that people should recognize, and usually that warning was from someone that they didn't recognize. They either didn't hold them in esteem, or they were mad at them, or whatever it was, and that person was warning them, but they didn't hold their voice in high enough esteem to hear Holy Spirit, or they didn't recognize Holy Spirit speaking to them because they were only viewing the package. And I think that's yeah. another uh, that's another um, instance. You said that Paul connected the fear of the Lord and uh, the kindness of God. Yeah. Is if they had feared God and God said, "Do not be doing that." Yep. You know, it's just like when the parent tells the kid. Yep. And they know they mean it. Yep. And they have the fear. Yep. Then they don't do it. And that is the kindness of God. Yeah. And it's also the fear of the Lord. So that and is connected. It's there. Very comforting. Because you don't have to guess what, I mean, if God says something, it, that's it. Yeah. And it is very comforting. You know, that's like with Kent. I mean, he knew if I said, you do this again, this is going to happen, it was going to happen. The only way it was not going to happen is if Holy Spirit told me the penalty, penalty does not fit the crime. Other than that, it happened. And, but he also knew if Holy Spirit said, hey, let them out of whatever early, I would. And so it created a very stable environment for him to grow as a person. The Lord's the same way. Yeah. And don't forget the kindness of the Lord is when he sat over there and methodically made a whip and then drove him out of his temple. That was a that is a Greek example of the word kindness as well. So kindness always has a fear tied to it, a good fear. Like Bill Johnson said, that pulls you toward him, not you run away. Which is kind of, it's funny, it makes sense now by Moses in Exodus 20:20, 20, 20, which I think is very interesting, so you have 2020 20 vision, said, don't, don't pull away, God is just testing you. It, well, first he said, don't, don't fear, don't be afraid, God is testing you to see if you fear him. Which is it? Am I supposed to be afraid or not be afraid? You know, like that's kind of the irony. And so that's the marker for true fear is that it actually draws you toward him. Mm -hmm. But when you got Moses who saw him face to face, and even he's like, mm -hmm. there's terror. Know. I heard a story of a guy, uh, it was Steve Thompson, and uh, he used to be with Morningstar. But anyway, he was praying and asking the Lord, show me the, your holiness or the fear of the Lord or something. He just kept crying out for it, crying out for it, crying out for it. The next thing he knew, was like he had blacked out and he was waking up screaming, I fear you! I fear you! I mean, it freaked him out. And he doesn't know exactly what he saw. He might have died if he would have, you know. He just knows that the terror that he felt waking up, but it didn't repel him, you know. It, he drew near to the Lord, but he said, I just would encourage you not to ask that. <laughs> All right. Well, Father, we love you so much. We just bask in your goodness this morning, your kindness, your, your, your blessings, Father. But we want to always, always, always need you. We, we want to cultivate that awareness of our need because, Father, our need for you is apart from anything material. It has nothing to do with that. Our need for you is the need for your presence, that union with you. That is a requirement. That We can't do that without you. We can't experience you. We cannot have access to see into you apart from you. And so that's where the need is located, Father. And, and so we ask that you help us, number one, to pursue you and that union with you to such a degree that you reveal yourself. We can see into you in deeper and deeper and deeper ways. And Father, we don't ever want to be where we think we know you and we get all prideful because knowledge without love puffs up. We want to have it settled in our hearts, love. Love for you, love for ourselves, love for one another. That will keep us in a place of safety as well as humility. And so I pray, Father, that that revelation of grace, that we're actually supposed to take that extremely seriously we're supposed to watch over one another and make sure that we say words that impart a revelation of grace, not depart from the revelation of grace. Father, I ask you to help us be aware of that. That if there's any frustration or anger, or maybe we're just fussy and tired that day, or 
Maybe we got some bad news or whatever it is. Or maybe we believe some stupid doctrine that's not even from you in the first place. Whatever it is, help us to measure our words by the revelation of grace they're giving to the hearer. Not to be afraid of rebuke when needed and things like that, but even in rebuke is grace. So I ask, because Father, we know grace teaches us to say no to sin. So I ask that you help us with that, Father, to be very careful with our words, to cultivate an awareness of your presence. And also, finally, Father, the fear of the Lord. Uh, I welcome the fear of the Lord. It, it has kept me from doing a lot of stuff, even as a kid. But I also ask that it be tempered with love. Now, both sides of the ditch, we have love, we have fear, and it keeps us on the path of life. That's my prayer. And Father, this morning we want to give our tithes and offerings to you. And Father, there is no legal obligation for us to do so. Jesus came and fulfilled all the law and the prophets, every jot and tittle. Instead, we give our tithes and offerings to you because it's a pledge of our allegiance to you using the very thing that the enemy wanted, and that was money. Because within wealth is the glory, and the glory is also the wealth, according to uh, Genesis chapter 29, I believe, or 30. So, Father, we give our tithe and offering to you this morning with free hearts, cheerfulness. We ask that Jesus receive them this morning where he is seated and help us to distribute your funds as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. Can someone stop both of those?